Hello, and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia, and I'm actually hosting alone today. Uh, and with me is a returning guest, someone who's been on the podcast before, a very good friend of mine, um, fellow history PhD here at Manchester, fellow Americanist, fellow mid to late 20th century Americanist. So we've got very similar interests in a lot of ways. Sam Taylor is here. Hi, Sam. Hi there. Good to be with you virtually. Yeah, yeah, we're doing we're doing a full on podcast over Zoom, which is very <laughs> exciting. Um, sort of a big step up from the sort of mini episodes that Jess and I were doing earlier in lockdown. This is our first attempt at having a live a live guest rather than a pre-recorded <laughs> guest. Well, that's been uh, the guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we're going to have a great time and uh, and get a good recording out of it. Absolutely. So, Sam, it's really great to have you back on the podcast. I can't actually remember when you were last on, but I think it was probably early 2019 i think so yeah february march time something like that yeah yeah so quite a while but it's good to be back yeah it's yeah and um so of course when we spoke to you last you were sort of about halfway through your first year and uh we talked uh quite a lot about your research and as i recall you had a funny story about uh seeing something about committees on the simpsons (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so what's kind of, what's changed in the last year, in your research, not in the world? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the, like the whole topic of the podcast. So what's changed? No, I mean, I feel like it's, it's I, last time I felt like I was, I'm not sure if imposter syndrome was the right term, but it certainly felt like what I was doing at that point was just reading everyone else's work and trying to find ways to disagree with them to make my PhD sound relevant. Now I've um, I've not actually been to any archives, but I've bought lots of sort of digital copies of collections from archives and I've gone through them and I've been able to write two draft chapters now. So it kind of feels like I've, I've, I've finally got control of the project. I, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's going in the direction I want it to go in. Um, I've found original evidence that are sort of largely backing up the sort of main methodological arguments I was originally trying to make. And they're also quite exciting case studies as well. I mean, they're exciting to me, um, <laughs> <laughs> might be boring to everyone else, but no, I think I think it, the project's on the on the right track. Yeah. Well, that's really exciting. It's nice to have that moment of feeling like you know you spend a lot of time, as you said, feeling like an imposter, and also reading mm. other people's work and and seeing all these sort of giants that have come before, even if they're just sort of giants in your little yeah, world. Um, exactly. <laughs> and just sort of wondering what you're going to say to step up to them. So when you do finally start to click with something that that makes the project yours and makes it make sense, that's very exciting. So um, this was actually something that I was going to talk to you about. You have mm. got documents digitised from archives. Mm. So you and I were both hoping that in 2020 <laughs> we would get on a plane and fly to America. Right, right. Where we would go to an enclosed space for many hours where other Mixing people might have been. <laughs> and, uh, and get access to documents. And that obviously didn't come to pass. Mm. So what has your experience been with getting digital uh, digital evidence or digital copies of your evidence? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's been quite lucky because um, the, the, the archives I've spoken to they they were very sort of quick as well um and they they sort of they, they didn't seem to be having a lot of requests for this sort of stuff so that was quite nice they were they were they were sort of very supportive and they kind of pointed me in the direction of other collections as well and said oh that this might be of interest to you we've also got this or 
go and speak to this archive but um yeah it's it's quite good i mean there there is a kind of excitement i think that goes with going that comes with going to the archives so i've i've been to the Schlesinger library uh quite a lot which is uh the sort of in at harvard university hundreds of thousands of collections uh on the history of women in the america in in the united states and some of those collections are just brilliant things so one collection i was looking at the Esther peterson collection i looked in a folder by accident and there was her ticket to jfk's inauguration um and you know tickets to the inaugural balls and things like that as well which is just stuff i wouldn't have sought out and i found it by accident but i found these beautiful little artifacts that you know were very tempted to steal but obviously (laughs) couldn't probably for the best not to (laughs) exactly yeah yeah so i mean there's there is that side to it as well and also as well you know it's just kind of nice traveling around the world to look at archives it's quite a quite a privileged thing to do and very exciting thing to do as well that you can kind of mix in work with traveling that way as well but no the digital stuff's worked very well actually and i think the good thing as well it's it's given me time to actually pause and actually read documents because normally when i've been to the archives in the past I've probably been there for like two, three days, maybe, um, you know, and they're working hours as well. So that could be like 10 till four o'clock or something like that. And really, it's just been a case of take pictures of everything, then look at it a few months later uh, or kind of quickly make notes on a bit of paper if there's an archive that doesn't allow photographs or scans. And, you know, you, you kind of miss the importance of what the documents are trying to say and, you know, who the people are that are involved with the documents. So really working digitally, I think, has been quite a good benefit because I've just been able to really think more about what these documents are saying, their relevance, and also it gives me time to connect the dots as well. So if I see a name in a document, I think, oh, right, that's also so-and-so was involved with this. So, you know, you can kind of leap back to another draft chapter or another archival collection and, you know, the dots are there and you notice them more working I suppose, from home rather than worrying about the uh, the train back to your hotel or something. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, so much of what we do as historians is, well, it's so much of it is supposed to be the evidence and working with directly with sources, but you can quite easily get separated from that aspect of your work or have to use the sources in quite a, I don't know how to put it, like that you have to sift through everything and really quickly make decisions about what you're going to use and what you're going to, what you don't have Mm. space for. Um, So, you know, there is, as you said, you go to the archive, you might take, you know, a a typical day at an archive for me, I could easily take upwards of a thousand photographs. Mm. What am I going to do with those? It's very unlikely that I'm going to go in depth on all of them. So there is a certain amount of selection that you have to do. But being able to take the time with the actual documents, even if it's scans of the documents, it's a bit more, um, yeah, like it gives you an opportunity to get a bit closer to the evidence. Absolutely, yeah. And I think also as well, the, the, the sort of really important thing is, is that they, they, they proper scan to these documents as well. And sometimes, like you say, I, I've gone and taken like a thousand photographs in a day and the quality's not as great, obviously. I mean, I'm I'm not very good with a phone camera, um, and sometimes I've like thought I've taken a picture and I've moved the phone too quickly, and this letter's very blurry, and you know, so yeah. you know. And it's... chances are you'll never take it off your phone as well. So I've got mm. loads and loads of like dating back to 2018 photos that I took at an archive in Paris, which is still relevant to my project. But I just look at them on my phone, you know, zooming in on the document on this <laughs> yeah. tiny little screen to see the little uh, details that I need to see. It's obviously not the uh, the best 
sort of um, the best way of doing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it's. It, but again, that it's kind of, I suppose, a feeling of not being able to do that. Though it's kind of like it's, it's it's sort of work you've gone and done by taking the picture, isn't it? Even though it sort of you know doesn't really take a second, that there, there still sort of feels that element to it as well. I suppose yeah. it's missing. Uh, yeah, I th- I know what you mean. You sort of want to. There's a certain aura in in the archive, and this having been there thing is. You're also so in my experience, I had to order some uh, some digitization from an archive, which they haven't had the chance to do yet because they're a very mm. small kind of local, uh, well, like state historical society. But they've been closed for months because of uh, the COVID situation. Yeah. Um, so I haven't had those documents yet. But I had to basically read descriptions of the boxes, which was just this very sort of like high high level description. It would just kind of be like field notebooks 1962 to 1963 yeah and be like okay i think i might want field notebooks 1962 <laughs> to 1963 i think i don't want field notebooks 1961 to 1962 yeah um and and so you don't know you have to make these decisions as a, a cost associated so you're having mm. to sort of you know again i was asking for whole boxes of things to be digitized and they come back and say okay that's very very thin uh paper so that box is really full to get oh. that box digitized it's it's going to be like four hundred dollars more than you thought and it's like oh okay i don't <laughs> even know if i'm going to use it yeah exactly yeah yeah i mean i mean that's that's happened with me one of the collections i had um there's something like 20 odd folders and i got the whole thing digitized but I've probably not used half of the folders because sometimes as well, there's a lot of duplication that goes in on there as well. Mm. So sometimes I'm purchasing three copies of the same letter because it got sent to three people, you know, and it's like, oh, right, and this is a six-page letter. Suddenly it feels like I've paid like 12, you know, paid for 12 pages to be scanned what I don't really need. So that there's, you know, it's like you say, it's it's kind of what is in these boxes, these, these very fill, full boxes, which sounds very exciting and probably will be helpful, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, if it's all duplicates, um, you can't know really from... And it's quite hard to communicate this over email as well, and, of course, they don't really have the time themselves, the staff, to go and, like, do it yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah, it's not that, like, if you want someone to actually get in there and do detail, then you're in the business mm. of paying a researcher, and that in itself is obviously kind of questionable because part, you know we're supposed to be the researchers right <laughs> um but yeah if you're there in the archive you can be making those decisions yourself mm. a little bit more on the fly it'll be like okay i've seen this letter before i can just note down that a copy was also sent to this congress person or whatever right yeah. versus you know i i still really don't have any idea what is going to be sent to me when mm. i get the the scanned documents i'm hoping for some interesting stuff in the field notebooks i'm hoping that there'll be some correspondence so this is all like a photographer's archive um but it's yeah it's it's not really clear what it is i'm going to get i think but you know if it's stuff that i can't use this time i'm just sort of mentally going to file it away for future projects or you know a a side project or something yeah absolutely yeah it'll still hold benefit and 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 you never know i I sort of thought you know, as I, I'm just, I'm just, I don't know if, you know, my, my approach is I'm sort of writing it chapter at a time and not really sort of thinking about the broader themes of the project until, um, you know, 
I start writing the next chapter and suddenly loads more dots are there to be uh, connected. But, uh, you know, sometimes as well, I sort of, you know, cast aside a letter thinking, oh, that's not relevant. And then in a year's time, it might be completely relevant because two people from two different parts of America are actually talking to each other, um, that, you know, inspiring each other. And suddenly the hidden gems that you thought were irrelevant are there. It's definitely a tricky time. And obviously, you know, we're not the only ones who are having trouble accessing materials uh but i mean i think this is potentially a good place to kind of segue into talking a little bit more about what research life has been for you uh in the last so uh, we're recording on the 20th of july 2020 uh so let's say for the last four months uh, how how has that been what's your experience has been yeah, I mean, obviously, it's been incredibly challenging, really, and very difficult. And I think the thing that um, really I, I think I miss most is just the idea of, you know, sort of at lunch breaks, you know, we'd all sit around and sometimes someone would just say, oh, I've, I'm having this trouble with it. What do you guys think about this? And we'd all sort of background ideas as well. And that was really helpful to me because, you know, sometimes like, you know, our historical interests are very closely related. You, you sort of think of things that I don't think of or somebody who is sort of studying a different country, different era comes forward and says something um, from an outsider's perspective as well. So that, that idea of bouncing around, I think, has been quite difficult. Uh, not having that um, has been quite difficult. Um, and obviously, you know, just sort of obviously missing friends and colleagues, you know, it's, it's it's been difficult on that front. But on the whole, I think, you know, chapter, I, I mean, I produced a chapter this, these last few months, um, which my supervisors said was good. Um, <laughs> so on that, on that level, it's been quite, you know, uh, been pretty good few months on that regard. And, you know, luckily, I got some documents in just before the archive shut down so um thank god i didn't delay by like a week or two because then it would have been a very different <laughs> few months uh but yeah pretty good overall I've, I've sort of enjoyed the slower pace in some ways not commuting has been very good um but uh yeah sort of quite isolating at times as well um and that's been that's been quite strange yeah i've yeah. certainly had um the really the same experience mm. i have managed to get work done this term and you should be super proud of yourself for writing a whole chapter oh, well, in, in lockdown <laughs> and getting good comments on it as well because it is a completely different way of working that is mm. in my experience at least way more challenging uh, and just requires a lot more resilience and right. determination and and all kinds of things that you know certainly i tend to to rely on other people to help me be strong enough to do the work kind of yeah. thing like yeah. just just what you were saying you know talking to my friends about my work talking mm. to you about about it and you know one of the great things about our community as historians is that there's people who have completely different skills mm. that mesh together really really well so that when I need to talk to someone about kind of the meat and potatoes American history stuff, which mm. I'm not particularly great at. You are such a sort of uh, good American historian. <laughs> like You, you know <laughs> oh, when well, things happened you. and you're interested <laughs> in the politics of it and things. Whereas I'm much more, you know, a bit more artsy-fartsy and I'm interested in, like, what was happening culturally and stuff. Um, but, you know... <laughs> I mean, like, yours it's... is much more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, different people find different things interesting, but... I felt uh, my work needs your kind of perspective 
to make it grounded and real and make it make sense and similarly I think that for a lot of other people I can kind of bring that more cultural perspective or that Mm. that sort of different way of like okay well how how about we get really into your sources and start make asking different questions about your sources and things yeah absolutely I mean quite right I think you know I I sort of echo what you just said as well because certainly when we've spoken in the past and like a lot of my sources there are sort of very dry boring meeting minutes and uh, you know things like that you know it's kind of quite difficult sources to read but nonetheless you know sometimes sort of the cultural side of it gets lost in all that as well so obviously when we've talked and you've sort of talked more about the culture of the year as well I've sort of thought oh well actually you know that there this isn't just a dry record of a meeting they're actually talking about things here that are incredibly relevant uh but you know i'm just not picking up on it because that my my mind isn't tuned into the cultural side of it so yeah absolutely i think you know we we complement each other very well there yeah and i think like there's that we are lucky enough to also just have so many amazing colleagues who all have a different Mm. strength and so Yeah. yeah i have so many great memories of sitting around a table in the in the break room and and yeah. kicking around someone's problem and trying to work out how we yeah how how to come at it from a new perspective it's that's been that's that's been something i've really missed and it's the thing i'm most looking yeah. forward to getting back to but yeah absolutely uh well i'm glad to hear still that even though it's been a sort of a different time for your work it hasn't been uh sort of uh it hasn't completely led to a breakdown in your work or anything um (laughs) is there anything else that you've been doing uh sort of during lockdown uh to relax or to sort of get through it oh i mean well i I think the uh the the lego white house i built has gone down very well um with everyone especially the uh the, the the lego presidents that i sort of makeshift lego presidents as well because not every president is yet a lego figure but um you know i think you know taking you know professor flitwick from harry potter and turning him into teddy roosevelt i have to say i think he's a strike of genius that sounds so boastful but <laughs> no, it is. so i will uh just for the benefit of podcast listeners we've been doing a bit of a like regular show and tell on zoom where like a few of us will get together and we'll just bring some like interesting thing uh and sam bought his lego white house and it was uh, one of the greatest things i've ever seen but my favorite thing about it is i hope i'm getting this right you've got uh professor x from x-men as fdr that's right. Yeah, <laughs> in his little uh, wheelchair. Professor X. Yeah, and uh, I bought a. Um, I don't know if it was an official Indiana Jones hat, but um, a, a hat like Indiana Jones's as well. Uh, there's the official Abraham Lincoln uh, statue because he was in the Lego Movie, and then the uh, man in suit, as you would call on the website, is posing as JFK. <laughs> and I think JFK just had perfect Lego hair, so he was quite easy to do. But um, yeah, there, there are official Obama and uh, Trump Lego figures as well, but uh, I've not. Is got there an official buying... Trump? There is, yeah, and it's 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 it's, it's as monstrous as you expect. Do they? And weirdly, so I'm 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 out, but might be about to get into some sensitive territory. I assume that to make an Obama minifigure, you probably don't use the generic yellow Lego man color. I assume that you no, modify no. skin tone, but do you do that for the Trump minifigure? <laughs> Making bright much. orange. <laughs> I, yeah, I I think so. Yeah, there's any way one way to go about it. And the, the Lego hair, I imagine, is is is, is extraordinary. I think his real uh, hair might be Lego. <laughs> it just slots onto the top of it? his head. 
<laughs> wakes up in the morning, the first thing he does, yeah. <laughs> we were talking about, uh, I was talking to someone about this just today. We were looking at someone mm. who had kind of an unconvincing hairpiece. And we were talking about when you put the hair on a Lego, but you put it on backwards. Maybe that's what he's done. <laughs> Quite possibly, yeah. It, it would explain a lot, wouldn't it? <laughs> um. And you were telling me as well that uh, you've been watching a show called Mrs. America, which is also relevant to mm. your research into... Yeah. So, yeah, could you tell me a bit about that? Well, yeah, so I'm, I'm very excited about this show. And anyone who hasn't seen it, I, I recommend you do. But it's, it's, um, it's essentially a narrative about the, the battles over the Equal Rights Amendment uh, in the early 70s up until 1980 and there's a lot of loads of characters in there sort of you know people whose names we recognize like uh, Gloria Steinem, Shirley Chisholm and Bell Rabsug um, and there's sort of people who you know sort of are you know whose names we don't possibly know like um, Jill Ruckelhaus who was um, quite senior in the Ford administration as well uh, but really the thing that I think that makes this show quite interesting is that it's largely told from the perspective of, or rather she's the central character, it feels, of Phyllis Schlafly, who's played brilliantly by Kate Blanchett, um, almost terrifyingly accurate at times in terms of just the voice and the mannerisms and the look. Um, but Phyllis Schlafly was essentially the leader of the anti-feminist conservative women's movement that led the battle against the Equal Rights Amendment and ultimately led to its defeat when at one stage it looked like ratification seemed inevitable. But she led a very strong movement that challenged it, particularly in the South and in parts of the Industrial North as well, that um, a lot of historians today are kind of looking on today and saying, well, actually, this is the moment when America became increasingly polarised in the sort of 60s and 70s, there's a lot of consensus about the Equal Rights Amendment, probably just because it was an easy thing for a politician to say, yes, we support the Equal Rights Amendment, we support equal rights for women. Don't really need to do much more than that. But um, Schlafly really kind of led this conservative revolt in the Republican Party that led to the nomination and then the election of Ronald Reagan, who took the Republican Party in a very different direction from the Nixon and Ford era, which was, you know, give or take, pro-equal rights amendment, pretty much pro-choice, you know, not not passionately, but kind of lip service to it anyway. Um, and, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating story to tell. And, you know, funnily enough, when the series came out and people started watching it, my phone sort of kept binging up, like, who is Phyllis Schlafly? Have you ever heard of Phyllis Schlafly? And, um, you know, it's the narrative that people find most interesting. I guess it's because even even Kate Blanchett has sort of admitted this. She didn't really know a lot about Phyllis Schlafly before she did the series. And I remember a few years ago talking to a colleague and she told me, well, I've always thought of Phyllis Schlafly as the most powerful woman in America that no one's ever heard of. And, you know, how you define most powerful, obviously, is it's difficult. But, yeah, certainly a very influential figure who really has not become a household name until this series. So I think that's why it's quite interesting. It kind of gives... It gives both perspectives very well, pro-ERA, anti-ERA, and it's not just propagandised to one side or the other, but the fact that this conservative counter-story is put in there, I think, is what has made the series quite, you know, controversial in many respects, quite fascinating, um, and, you know, quite interesting as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it sounds uh, like such an... It must be quite a cool experience. I suppose that people who do certain types of history, not the type, not what we do, probably get to see <laughs> something so relevant to their interests portrayed on television fairly often, I suppose, if you're working on, like, World War Two or, I don't know, the, the mm. Tudors or something. Like, you might get something a bit more tailored to your interests. But when, like, to have something so... It seems to me so specifically tailored to something that you're mm. really, really interested in and kind of already an expert in. Is, it must be a pretty cool experience. I slightly live in fear that someone is going to make a TV series about my photographers before I do it. Because uh, right, <laughs> yeah, I want to yeah. be, be the one to do it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Th th there were a few sort of <gasps> moments watching Mrs. America, particularly an episode where they start talking about the the the, the, um, the, the commission that Gerald Ford set up in the late seven in, in the uh, mid seventies on this sort of to investigate the status of women. And I was kind of thinking, ah, okay, this is getting a little bit too uncomfortable now. Just, just, <laughs> yeah, just get away from my researcher, right? That's mine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the broad national narrative you find. Stay away from my, uh, you know, my front. <laughs> There. yeah uh so yeah no it, it is quite exciting like you say sort of it's 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 um i mean like last year it's kind of quite exciting was it was it last year or the year before when uh the movie about ruth bader ginsburg came out as well that was kind of quite exciting as well again not really sort of touching on my phd project but um uh you know it, kind of quite exciting just to have a movie that feels you know relevant um and gets people talking as well which is quite good because i, I think obviously with academia sometimes you worry well, is anyone outside of academia actually interested in what, what we're working on? So it is quite nice that there's been a movie and then this TV series as well that comes out that kind of gets people talking about it and also gets people familiar with the narrative as well so that, you know, it, it sort of takes a little bit of work off you as well, um, <laughs> to put it delicately. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it just gives you something else to point to, you know, when you're asked, like, well, why should I care about your work? It's like, well, because other people do. I might be, maybe this is a little self-congratulatory, I don't know, but I think that I am actually, the one thing I don't have to worry about is whether my topic is interesting. Like, right. it's definitely, I, I don't know whether it's important, but whenever I mention it to people, people are like, wow, that that is interesting. I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, like, you know, women, women photographers and the Vietnam War and stuff, mm. it brings a lot of things that people can... People can think of it as like an exciting story and it's got characters and stuff. It's not, it's easy to see it as kind of a bit of an adventure story. I just have to kind of prove that it had, these women had some impact beyond, you know, their, their own lives. Um, right. But yeah, like it's, it's nice. I'm, I think I'm quite lucky that I don't have to explain to people why my work is exciting yeah. It, it, like whereas you know when it your work really is exciting and it you know well no it is like you're talking about you know change on a national scale if not really on a global scale being enacted mm. by you know going from a quite a local level up to this really big scale and how this was happening and who was making it happen uh all these sort of different driving forces that led to extremely significant change and you can really trace a line from the actions to the result uh mm. but it's maybe a little bit harder to make it an exciting story so it's interesting to hear that someone has 
or a lot of people, I suppose, have collaborated to make a TV series that shows the exciting personal, the characters who who made the story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And for it to be done so brilliantly as well, like it's, it's a show, I mean, I, I, I struggle I'm sort of I think I'm in the wrong time period because I do struggle kind of watching sort of like you know stream Netflix shows or anything like that. I just don't have the patience to watch more than two episodes of a show, and by halfway through the second episode, I'm sort of you know getting distracted by other things. But this was a show that really kind of kept my attention, um, and was just everyone in it was just gave gave just brilliant performances as well. Um, it's a, you know that. And, you know, people who kind of don't really know a lot about American history as well have watched it as well. People, sort of, you know, people I know, sort of friend, friends and family have watched it and just sort of said it's a really, really interesting show. Um, so very lucky in that regard, yes. Well, I mean, it, it got shown on the BBC as well, and I don't, I don't have Hulu, so again, like I'm rubbish with streaming things, so it's quite nice that the BBC had the hindsight to make it available to everyone. So is it on the iPlayer? So I think I think they're showing it two episodes a week on something like a Wednesday, but every episode as of now is on the iPlayer, yeah, which is you can just watch them all straight away, which is pretty much what I did, um, and you know called it working on my PhD. <laughs> Watching it counts. Episodes, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I've been trying to make my way through the Ken Burns Vietnam War documentary. Oh wow! I've been working on yeah. it for about two years now, and I think I've watched about six episodes <laughs> because every time I watch an episode, I have to take a two-month break where I'm very, very sad because <laughs> it's just—I mean, oh, it's God. unbelievably well made. Just in my opinion, like mm. you know, that, that there are differing opinions on it, but I think it's a really, really great documentary. But yeah. it's too it's too real they've done such a great job the researchers who worked on putting it together managed to get the most amazing selection of talking heads to do it oh, right. uh, so that they have at least one person from almost every perspective you can imagine on the war so you have people who were in the North Vietnamese army you have people who oh, wow. were in the South Vietnamese army you have you know American marines who are white black Jewish you know they mm. really like obviously there's there's as many perspectives on the war as there were people, but uh, they get these really, really great selection of talking heads. And then the way that people talk about it is so personal, it's so like powerful that you can't think of it as a... While you're watching it, you can't think of it as this sort of historical event that you can hold at arm's length. It's only yeah. like this this thing that happened incredibly up close and personal for so many people so it's like i really recommend it i think i guess this mm. is an episode with some television recommendations <laughs> yeah um, quite but it is uh yeah it's been taking me a long time to watch because i just get really sad afterwards yeah well i, I suppose that speaks to how powerful it is as well isn't it ken burns is very good at it obviously but it's kind of i've seen some documentaries about the vietnam war where you you it, it, it's it's it almost seems very dry um you know this happened and this, this happened and then you know the end and it's sort of well hold on a minute you've, <laughs> yeah you've skipped <laughs> you over know. quite an important uh yeah element of it i mean that is i mean it as you say it's just testament to a great documentary maker i could only mm. dream of being able to uh, make something <laughs> so powerful, but um, quite yeah. Well, uh, is there anything about your 
topic in there sort of, you know, not specifically um maybe but sort of photography of the world um there's nothing that's come up specifically yet but it does make really good use of photography which i guess mm. makes sense because um i haven't seen any of his other documentaries but i know he's done things like the civil war documentary which mm. i think used quite a lot of still imagery um so it it's this blend of talking heads and uh footage from the time and then quite a lot of photography used in there as well so it's really interesting to see um a documentary that's made with photography as a kind of it's something of a visual element it's something of a piece of evidence and it also gives you this kind of feeling uh because so much of what we think of when we think of the vietnam war is to do with images and photographs so yeah. it's um it's it's very powerful in that regard i don't know if there's going to be i could believe that there will be more later on in the series about uh sort of journalist experiences there's quite a few right. male journalists who are in there as talking heads um mm. and i'm quite interested in that because of how the journalist experience has been portrayed a lot of journalists who were there uh sort of adopt this quite macho take on it where they see being a journalist right. as almost having been the same as being a soldier okay um, right so uh, yeah i think the fact that you have uh sort of journalist talking heads interspersed with sort of active combatant talking heads is quite interesting mm. um anyway sam i i'm I've had such a good time talking to you again today. Likewise. Um, and thank you very much for the recommendation. So Mrs. America is currently on the BBC iPlayer. Sam was not involved in making it, but he still recommends no, it. No, I don't get any royalties. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, would, I would recommend as well, if anyone finds it interesting as well, um, the, the, the book I would recommend to go along with it is Marjorie Sproul's um, Divided We Stand, um, which is it sort of tells that, you know, the... the the documented history of it as well. Uh, so th that series plus Marjorie Sproul's book, I think, uh, you know, everyone should wa uh, watch and read and, you know, discuss. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sam, thank you very much for, uh, for joining me today. And uh, for those who are listening, thank you very much. And don't forget, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast, or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom. <laughs>